Well, uh, why don't we go ahead and first open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, as we uh, study doctrine tonight, it's always good to learn about you. So we pray that as we study the doc- these doctrines together that you would reveal yourself in the most glorious way that perhaps we haven't thought of before, as we come across doctrines that are more often than not reminders, we pray that you would make it fresh to us, and we pray that we would be edified as we study together. Father, we thank you for what friends, who friends are and what friends have done, and we pray that in our gaining of respect for them, that all glory would always go to you, and we pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen. Let me turn my phone off before it dings. But um, last week we finished our historical look, really, on friends. We kind of, I hope I showed you really in those first three weeks how we got from George Fox to Woodland Friends. And so um, tonight, and after studying, I decided we're going to have to do another Tuesday. <laughs> Uh, we're switching gears from historical, and we're going to be looking at beliefs and distinctions of friends and so forth. I will be pulling primarily from faith and practice, which is what uh, we have as in our denomination of the, the, the doctrines that we believe in, of the Northwest Early Meeting of Friends, because you find yourself part of a church who is part of the Northwest Early Meeting of Friends. And you will probably find that most of those doctrines are pretty much the same as any Bible-believing church. But I kind of want to go through them. I will be going over the ones that are more regular, shared by many churches, probably fast. But I still don't want to skip them because I want you to see these are doctrines that friends hold. It's not just, oh, we're concerned about our distinctions. No, they hold these other doctrines very much to the heart, and that's very much who the friends are. And... um. You will also, if you have a full copy of the uh, Faith and Practice, which I put on your outline, you can access from our website at our church, or you can access from our Northwest Yearly Meeting of Friends website. I can't give you, or at least I didn't print off the full Faith and Practice for all of you because it's 95 pages long. <laughs> but um, all it consists of is doctrines, and then it consists of um, older excerpts. There's a letter from George Fox to, I believe, the governor of Barbados, and many friends look at that as actually George Fox's listing of doctrines, because he was telling him what we believe as friends. And so because George Fox himself or the original friends never wrote down any doctrine. But there's also the Richmond Declaration, which is what I mentioned last week, that all the Gurneyite, the evangelical friends, got together and wrote down, this is what we believe. That's also in our faith and practice. And so, But let's just dive right in, beginning in the faith and practice, at the very beginning of it, um, this is what Northwest Early Meeting of Friends, uh, this was last updated 2011. I don't know when the first statement practice was made, but for the Northwest Early Meeting of Friends. Um, but anyways, it reads, Northwest Early Meeting of Friends Church affirms as essential Christian truths the following teaching of the Apostolic Church, the sovereignty of God, the deity and humanity of Jesus Christ, the atonement through Jesus Christ by which persons are reconciled to God, the resurrection of Jesus, which assures the resurrection of all true worshipers, the gift of the Holy Spirit to believers, and the authority of the Holy Scriptures. And it says, the yearly meeting also endorses traditional statements of friends, including those emphasizing an inward encounter with God, a worship of communion without ritual, 
an individual responsibility for ministry and service, and a striving for peace and justice. In addition, the yearly meeting speaks to contemporary issues concerning morality, human relationships, and Christian commitment. And then they say, Friends hold that the authentic Christian belief includes both an inward faith and an outward expression of that belief. Accordingly, the two parts, faith expressed as doctrine and faith expressed through witness, constitute the set of beliefs endorsed by Northwest Yearly Meeting of Friends Church. And so, maybe you hear that original George Fox and that George was concerned that many people around him are holding theological doctrines, but they did not have any witness. And so friends have always said, well, we need to be a witness of our beliefs. We just can't hold doctrines and then go do what we want to do in terms of drinking or sinning in that manner. And so that's we're just going to be looking at the doctrines tonight, and then next week we'll be looking at faith expressed through witness, and there's, there's ten each. So let's look at doctrines, and um, then I will take pauses as we look at distinctly friends' beliefs, or perhaps beliefs that you may not be aware of if you grew up in another church. Um, first of all, we see God as creator. That's pretty self-explanatory. I do like the line in faith and practice. Uh, I underlined it up here. It says, He illuminates, God illuminates humankind through rational understanding, experience, and direct revelation. He speaks through the scriptures, so illuminates. It kind of reminds us of John 1, 9, the true light who gives light to everyone who is coming into the world. Second doctrine, God's revelation in Christ. Uh, two phrases that I want to bring out of this doctrine is Christ is the Word. Seems like we've been studying that on Sundays. He is the light that exposes our sin and brings us into the righteousness of God. So, Christ, or God's revelation in Christ. Third doctrine, God's revelation by the Spirit. So this is kind of a big doctrine. Friends are really big on the Holy Spirit, and we're going to actually touch a little bit more on all that the Spirit does. But I'm going to read the entire paragraph here from Faith and Practice. It says, We believe God is the source of truth, that there are no spiritual insights or principles independent of His revelation. God's Spirit teaches us through the Scriptures and through the creation. He convicts and instructs conscience, testifies to salvation through Christ, and gives wisdom and power for holy living. The Spirit gives discernment concerning the purposes of God through natural and social history. The Spirit enlightens reason and quickens human creativity that we might share in the work of the Creator. God's revelation in the scriptures, the fourth doctrine, pretty self-explanatory again, interpreted by the Holy Spirit, reads faith and practice. They are an unfailing source of truth. We believe the Spirit will not lead persons or groups contrary to the teachings of the scriptures. Just want to make you aware of a little uh, history of yearly meeting. I wasn't, didn't have this in my notes, but I just remembered whenever I read this that this was a doctrine that had one slight little word change recently, and that word, um, and, used to be the. They are the unfailing source of truth. First of all, I was like, why did they change it? But then I thought of, you could add a coffee instruction manual booklet, 
you're probably going to find truth there. They're not trying to deceive you. And so it didn't hit me too much. There were reasons that I think people wanted to change it that probably weren't kosher, but at the same time, I'm not too disturbed by it because the entire faith and practice still in my mind seems to be based solely on the Bible. Next, we come to the baptism, or no, we come to the fifth one, excuse me, human redemption. So salvation in Christ, people sinned, Jesus came and died for us, and when people put faith in Christ for salvation, he justifies us before God. So if you ever have access to a faith and practice, I encourage you to read it later, but kind of the cornerstone of Christianity, human redemption. Um, but now we come to a kind of a distinctly Quaker view on baptism. So we're going to camp here for a while. But first of all, let's just look at uh, what the doctrine says. We believe Christ's baptism to be the inward receiving of the promised Holy Spirit, whereby the believer is immersed in Jesus' power, purity, and wisdom. This baptism is the essential Christian baptism, an experience of cleansing from sin that supplants old covenant rituals. The sanctification that is initiated with this experience is a continuing work of the Holy Spirit in which we are instructed into righteous living and perfected in love. Thus, sanctification is the work of God's grace by which our affections are purified and exalted to a supreme love of God. If you were here for my series in Mark, one of the last sermons I talked a little bit about the Quaker view of baptism. So if you were here for that, this might sound a little bit like review. However, the Quaker view of baptism is entirely spiritual. So let's look at this in two positive ways for the Quakers in historical perspective, and then we'll look at it from a biblical perspective. Historically speaking, when the Quakers emerged in the mid-1600s around the time of George Fox, Again, we remember that Fox saw a lot of hypocrisy around him. He saw folks who went to the university, preached in the pulpit, and then got drunk in the tavern and just acted like hypocrites. A lot of precedence in George Fox's time was given to sacraments. Catholic theology gave several sacraments that were like loops and phases one went through for salvation. Um, you got baptized when you were young. Your chances of being saved were then fairly decent. You partook in the Eucharist, even better, if you did it every Sunday, you're doing great, you're on your way to salvation. And so when the Reformation happened, a lot of what happened was this general idea of state churches were saying, oh, that's silly, simply because you were baptized and eating the Lord's Supper doesn't mean you're saved. However, said the state churches, if we administer those sacraments, <laughs> then you're saved because we've recovered the true church. What the early Quakers noted and said, wait, what is it that saves you? <laughs> what makes you a citizen and saint of the kingdom of God? It's faith in Jesus Christ, and it's the seal of salvation and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So that's what Quakers were saying. They wanted to get away from what people thought were sacraments that were somehow helping them in their salvation. Um, so the early Quakers were saying these sacraments are not necessary for salvation, but furthermore, these sacraments, as are all sacraments, are pointing to a spiritual reality that's more important. Uh, the spiritual reality of dying to sin and rising again in righteousness in terms of baptism. As the doctrine states, 
the believer is immersed in Jesus' power, purity, and wisdom. So what about the scriptural testimony to this? Well, let me just show you a few passages. Note what John the Baptist says about Jesus' baptism in Mark 1.8. He says, I have baptized you with water, says John the Baptist, but he, Jesus, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So, there seems to be at least two baptisms here mentioned. Um, John says, I baptize you with water. Jesus baptizes you with the Holy Spirit. And so, that Holy Spirit baptism, is it a physical baptism or is it a spiritual baptism? You can think long and hard on the question, but just as a reminder, (laughs) John says he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. It sounds like John knows a differentiation between two different baptisms. He talks about a literal, physical baptism that John does, and a literal, true, genuine, valid, just not visible baptism that Jesus does with the Holy Spirit. Do you see that? Furthermore, I would note in your Bibles that every time these two separate baptisms are mentioned in your Bible, and I put that in your outline, all these verses... Literally every time, the baptism of Jesus, that is with the Holy Spirit, is contrasted and given greater importance over the water baptism of John. Now, we do see in the book of Acts people being baptized in water. We see the eunuch who Philip explained the suffering servant to, and he says, look water, what's keeping me from being baptized? That's what the eunuch says. Or when Peter talks to the centurion and the Holy Spirit comes upon the centurion and those gathered, Paul says in Acts 10, or excuse me, Peter says in Acts 10, 47, can anyone withhold water and prevent these people from being baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? So we do see that water is administered. So, if we take note of John's differentiating between two baptisms, but then we also see post-death, burial, resurrection, people still being administered with water baptism as well, we might ask, we might ask, do we need both baptisms then? Do we need water and spiritual? Here's an interesting passage in Ephesians 4. Paul writes, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope at your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. So Paul says there's only one baptism in the church. John the Baptist notes two baptisms. What baptism, I wonder, is Paul referring to? (laughs) Which one is more important? I would bet that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is more important and more greater, as the Bible testifies to, than water baptism. So now you see theologically and biblically, how Quakers come to that. So I'm not saying 100% you better agree, but I think there's good biblical precedent to come to the conclusions they have. The church, um, very basic doctrine, but I like this wording here. I bolded it up here. It says, these persons in the church agree together to follow Jesus as Lord. The church is spiritual in nature, universal in scope, holy in character, and redemptive in purpose. Its head is Jesus Christ, who serves immediately as priest and ministers directly as teacher and prophet. I'm actually calling this lesson, um, 
He alone is the shepherd and bishop of our souls, and that's actually a quote from George Fox in his letter to the king of Barbados. And so that just kind of reminds me of what what is said here. You know, Jesus serves immediately as priest and ministers directly as teacher and prophet. Number eight, uh, God's kingdom. When Jesus showed up in the gospel, you look at the beginning of any gospel, what does he say? He says, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand, or is near. And so historically, we've always heard of God's kingdom that is already, but also not yet. It's announced, it's began, it's just not consummated completely. Um, As our doctrine states, the kingdom is present now to the extent that the people of God hear his voice and obey it. The coming kingdom will be initiated by the second appearing of Jesus Christ. So that's the God's kingdom. Now we move on to another distinction that we uh, should camp on, the spiritual experience. Let's hear it in its entirety. It says, we believe that we may experience Christ directly and immediately without the necessity of priestly or ceremonial intervention and that this experience is available to every person. The spiritual life is nourished by the Holy Spirit who teaches and guides us both individually and corporately according to his commandments. For friends, the supper of the Lord is an inward feeding on Christ by faith in response to his broken body and shed blood. So again, how historically this was approached, kind of the same as baptism, Quakers witnessed other churches using the Lord's Supper, or also known as the Eucharist, abused by many churches as a means of people being saved, take our communion, you're insured for salvation, that sort of thing. One cannot be baptized or take communion and then live an unholy life and expect to be saved. Furthermore, what is the purpose or the reality that is expressed in communion? Let me put my Quaker hat on as I try to give you positively the best defense (laughs) for the Quaker view of communion. And and I just want to make a sell for this book again, a really good following Jesus. is where I got most of my defenses. Um, You can find it on Amazon, or I could probably let you borrow that. But In the Gospel accounts, we know that Matthew is Levi, a former tax collector and a disciple and eyewitness of Jesus. Mark, when he wrote his gospel account, is likely being dictated to by Peter. And many believe now that Mark was the earliest gospel account written. Luke is a historian and a companion of Paul. Uh, John is another eyewitness and likely one of the, if need not the, best friend of Jesus. So I want to look at Mark in his description of communion, because Mark is the earliest account We know the setting, that it's Passover, we know that they're eating, and in the middle of Passover meal, we read in Mark 14, as they were eating, he, that is Jesus, took bread, blessed and broke it, gave it to them and said, take it, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and after giving thanks, he gave it to them, and so they all drank from it. He said to them, this is my blood that establishes the covenant, it is shed for many. I assure you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew, in a new way in the kingdom of God. After singing psalms, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Now, a few things. Again, what's most important is the fact that this is believed to be the oldest existing gospel account. And if you've ever been to any communion services, there is a phrase that is often used when we read from 
1 Corinthians 11, or when we read from Luke, that is absent from this oldest account. Can anybody guess what it is? There you go. Do this in remembrance of me, or as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Why is Mark missing that? Why does Jesus, in Mark's eyes, and in Peter's uh, dictation, why does Jesus not command remembrance or command uh, a repetition of this ceremony? The fact lies in what Jesus was saying about himself and what he was accomplishing. He takes the bread and breaks it. This is my body. And he takes the cup and he says, this is my blood that establishes the covenant. It is shed for many. Now, is Jesus giving his real body or his real blood? No, he's using an illustration. And he's saying that what I'm about to accomplish is, in essence, what's happening here. I'm giving you my body and blood. I'm doing this for you. You can partake in me spiritually. My body and blood is for you. And this reality is enacted when? At Christ's death and resurrection. Hebrews uses a phrase a lot. In Hebrews 7.27, we read he that is, Jesus doesn't need to offer sacrifices every day, as high priests do, first for their own sins and then for those of the people. Jesus, he did this once for all when he offered himself. Hebrews 9.12, he entered the most holy place once for all, not by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. Or Hebrews 10.10, 10. oops. By the will of God, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. And these are all realities, spiritual realities, that Jesus once and for all sacrificed himself for us once, and it is binding for all time. He entered the holy place, the presence of God on our behalf, by his own blood, the blood he gives to his disciples, not literally, but spiritually offers to us, and symbolically offered through a cup to illustrate his point. Once and for all, his blood obtains eternal redemption for us. Or we are sanctified once and for all by Jesus Christ as well. What is even more striking, that besides this earliest account of the Lord's Supper, which has or knows no urging of repetition and remembrance on part of Jesus, is the Gospel account of John. So we know that Matthew, Mark, and Luke know each other's records somehow. They dipped into the same resources. Many believe that Mark and Luke, or Matthew and Luke look at Mark as well as you know, recall from their own memory, talk to witnesses. But John is another disciple of Jesus. He calls himself the closest friend of Jesus and is probably the last gospel account written. Many believe he wrote that in the 90s AD. Do you know what's missing from this eyewitness account of Jesus who writes... Because he says in John 20, 29, he says, But these are written so that you may believe Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and by believing you may have life in his name. So what's striking is that John undoubtedly has the longest account of the Passover meal with the disciples. We are led to believe, if we read John at face value, that chapters 13 through 17 of John all happened on that Thursday night. Absent from this long narrative of Thursday night is the Lord's Supper. He never talked about the Lord's Supper as Matthew, Mark, Luke, Matthew, Mark, or Luke did. Now, John, writing last, purposefully, probably sought to give information that was, was not already circulating or what has already been seen. So, in other words, he says, okay, Matthew, Mark, and Luke covered this. I'll skip over it. 
That's a possibility. But it is striking that the eyewitness and best friend, John, is so very evangelical in his purposes for writing his book, that if partaking a literal Lord's Supper was utmost to a person's faith, why would John skip over it? Furthermore, we know that the spiritual truths evidenced in the Lord's Supper is not skipped over by John. If you go over to John chapter 6, from about verse 22 to the end of the chapter, we read Jesus hammering on what he was hammering at the Lord's Supper that Thursday night recorded in the other gospel accounts. I just want to emphasize John 6, 53-58 for you. Jesus said to them, I assure you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you do not have life in yourselves. Anyone who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day, because my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood lives in me, and I am him. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. It is not like the manna your fathers ate, and they died. This, the one who eats this bread will live forever. So in John's Gospel here, Jesus is not in the upper room, according to John, when he's saying these things. And furthermore, the responses he is receiving is actually from the Jews. So we know this must have been a separate occasion for Jesus. And the disciples as well, both of them are confused. And they're saying things like, do you want us to be cannibals? You know, I mean, like, because the idea, of course, is Jesus is not commanding cannibalism, but spiritual communion, a spiritual acceptance of him, and a spiritual reality that takes place here. So in a general sense, we see that Jesus has always been the substance of the shadows of the Old Testament. George Fox himself taught a lot on shadows versus substance. Shadows being ceremonies and rituals of the Old Testament, and Jesus uh, being the one who, the substance of those. We see that Jesus fulfills everything in the Old Testament. Jesus is the last prophet. He is the last priest. If you read the book of Hebrews, he is the last king, the king of kings. In the Old Testament, there were prophets like Moses and Elijah. There were priests. Some even see Abel as a priest because he gave a sacrifice. But then you remember he dies and it says his blood cried out from the ground. Sounds a lot like Jesus who dies and his blood cries out from the ground. We see Noah after the ark. He makes sacrifices. We see Aaron as the priest. We see Melchizedek back in Genesis, the priest of Abraham. Then we obviously have King David and King Solomon, whom Jesus compared himself to. We have the sacrificial system, which again, you read the book of Hebrews, it's all about that. Christ fulfills we have Israel, the vineyard, tells us Isaiah chapter 5, a chosen people of God in which the parable of the vineyard, and also in John 15, what does Jesus say? I am the true vine. So we see Jesus as the substance of Israel. Galatians 3 tells us that we are the body of Christ, we're inheritors of the promise. In Christ, you know, that's how it's fulfilled. And so Jesus is constantly revealing himself to be the substance of what was done in the past. So Quakers are just saying, we see that Christ has always fulfilled rites and rituals. Why would he then turn around and institute two others? Baptism and communion. If his norm is to fulfill rites and rituals. So that's the general argument. I've copied a few pages out of this book of following Jesus. That's the separate uh, packet that came with you if you're interested in what Paul Anderson 
and more as he talks about the biblical evidence that shows that an institution of the Lord's Supper may have been a generation or two later. I'll let you read that. But we have one more doctrine to unpack a bit. Um, In faith expressed as doctrine, we come to number 10, worship. It is defined in faith and practice as, so again, the last page of your uh, notes is page four of the outline, just so I can confuse you and hear everybody turn their pages. (laughs) Worship is the adoring response of heart and mind to the Spirit of God. The meeting for worship brings a personal and corporate renewal and edification and communion of believers and a witness of the gospel to the unconverted. We recognize the value of silence to center our thoughts upon God. We believe the Spirit speaks to worshipers through persons he has prepared and selected, whose messages may be given in various modes by men or women, children or adults. We believe God calls some persons to a special preaching ministry which the church should respectfully receive. Friends, observe the first day of the week for corporate worship and for rest. We might see a few things in here we might call distinctly Quaker. Um, First, we see silence, which is perhaps made most popular by Quakers, but as with any of the doctrines we are looking at that might be distinctly, distinctly Quaker, obviously the Quakers and maybe others believe that these are recovered doctrines or they're already present in Scripture, so they're not... manufactured by the Quakers. We do do open worship from time at Woodland Friends. Um, Perhaps we don't take as much time in silence as most churches, most Quaker churches. We obviously take silence before the sermon every Sunday. But whenever we meet in silence, we're not being silent for silence's sake. (laughs) We're waiting on the Lord. Um, We're waiting for Him to move on people, to speak through people. This is, again, not to dissuade people from pastors, but it is to encourage um, uh, it is to encourage the faithfulness and the maturity of every believer. You know, I expect all of you to be in your Bibles every week. I don't expect you to come here and fill up on spiritual stuff from Pastor Kevin. <laughs> you know, and so we remember that God is the one who brought life to every person. Thus, every person is on a journey of faithfulness and should be seeking the Lord and might have something to say. A few passages I would show you in 1 Corinthians 12. Paul is talking about the body of Christ and how the Spirit empowers the believers individually. And he words it thus, Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone to teach or to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Or to one is given the Spirit of utterance, of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. So utterance of wisdom, utterance of knowledge, some have these gifts. Uh, Two chapters later in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul writes, Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God, for no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. 
The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be, be built up. So it's interesting, most people read 1 Corinthians 14 and they always read it through the lens of speaking in tongues because that's the controversial doctrine. But Paul says, I wish you all would speak in tongues, but even more, verse 5, <laughs> in other words, I wish you all prophesied <laughs> that the church may be built up. Verse 3, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. So prophesying is not only known as foretelling, but it's also just divine teaching. That is, spirit-led teaching, spirit-inspired teaching. Exactly. And for the remainder of 1 Corinthians 14, Paul is talking really about these two things, speaking in tongues and prophesying. We come to verse 26, and he says, What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation, that all things be done for building up. If anyone speak in a tongue, let there, let there be only two, or at most three, and in each turn let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh in on what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to prophets, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. So the prophesying, the teaching, and the exhorting here is kind of our hope for open worship. So uh, Colossians 3.16, you can read in that later as well. If you think about it later, I think I put it down in your outlines. But also under the worship doctrine, we note again, we believe the Spirit speaks to worshipers through persons he has prepared and selected whose message may be given in various modes by men or women, children or adults. We believe God calls some persons to a special preaching ministry which the church should respectfully receive. The Quaker Church, since its founding, has supported the idea of women in pastoral ministry and teaching ministry, um, but also emphatically children <laughs> as well. The uh, Valiant 60, if you remember that, that's the band of preachers who went across the English countryside with George Fox, were a diverse group of characters. There was children in there, there was women, there was elderly, gentry, peasants, and so forth. And also during the persecutions of Quakers, many times children were all that's left, and so they were prophesying in their meetings. Um, as for where this sort of doctrine is believed to be found in the Bible, if we go to Acts 1, we see Acts 1, verses 12 through 15. We're talking about, well, let's just read it. It says, Then they, that is the disciples, returned to Jerusalem from the mount, called the Mount of Olives, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. When they arrived, they went to the room upstairs where they were staying. Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon, the son of, excuse me, Simon the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James. All these were continually united in prayer, now notice this, along with the women, including Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. During these days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The number of the people who were together was about 120. And so Peter calls up for the replacement of Judas. But I want you to know here that 120 are gathered in this room, and among them is counted the women, like Mary and so forth. We move on to Acts 2, and we are to assume, it seems, that Luke that this is still the 120 that are being talked about, uh, Acts 2. 
When the day of Pentecost had arrived, they, that's the 120, including women and Mary, were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like that of a violent rushing wind came from heaven, and it filled the whole house where they were staying, and tongues like flames of fire that were divided appeared to them and rested on each one of them. Then they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in different languages as the Spirit gave them ability for speech. So the day of Pentecost, 120 of these people, some of them women, they're all speaking in different languages, and it's all of them. <clears throat> it is said the Spirit is to rest on them in verse Again, verse 4, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in different languages. We know, so the scripture tells us, that each and every person there for Pentecost from their different nations can hear the gospel in their own languages. And we also know the charge hurled against them. They're drunk! <laughs> Which would be a pretty miraculous episode if wine had so intoxicated these folks to give gospel messages in all the languages of that day. Presumably, many of them had never spoken before. That's some tough line. Well, what does Peter say? Acts 2.15. For these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it's only nine in the morning. On the contrary, this is what was spoken to the prophet Joel. And it will be in the last days, says God, that I will pour my spirit on, out on all humanity, your sons, then your sons, and your daughters will prophesy... Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. I will even pour out my spirit on my male and female slaves in those days, and they will prophesy. And we'll stop right there for the focus and the purposes in Acts 2, because Peter is saying this prophecy of Joel is fulfilled. He's saying that we are in the last days. Why does Peter believe it's fulfilled? Because the 120, among them women, <laughs> had just... Uh, have the Holy Spirit poured out on them, and they are all prophesying. They're speaking in tongues, they're proclaiming the gospel, and others are hearing it. If they can prophesy at Pentecost, can they prophesy in orderly worship, I wonder? We are told by Paul in Galatians 3, 28, there is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. The idea on spontaneous proclamation and prophesying comes from the idea in 1 Peter 2, also the priesthood of all believers, that we are all priests, male and female. Peter is writing a letter to the general Christian population, male and female, and in that, Peter says, in 1 Peter 2, 5, he says, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Then, verses 9 through 10, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So Peter says that you may proclaim the excellencies of him. That who may do that, Peter? The royal priesthood, made up of males and females, the royal priesthood of all believers may do that. And so Quakers have historically and to this day allowed for women ministers, and in a way encourage young friends and believe young friends may at times 
speak for God. For example, if we had an open worship here and if Reese wanted to get up and say something or if Charlotte or Vivi wanted to get up and say something, I'm not going to say sit down and shut up. But uh, And sometimes what they say is very profound. And even Kathy Youngquist has told me several times after Children's Church, you wouldn't believe what this person said today. I, it spoke to me. So, um, um, but we also see about, you know, Samuel in the uh, Old Testament. He was told to prophesy for God at a very young age. Now, I don't believe a fringe church would ever hire a 12-year-old pastor. But as I said, in an open worship, it's obviously uh, allowed, would be heard and considered. So we're just going to cover those ten doctrines tonight. We have ten more sections to cover under faith expressed through witness. And I think we'll cover the first one rather quickly because it just kind of emphasizes this last doctrine we just covered really in a different way. In all these doctrines, I just want to encourage you and let you know that friends are by nature humble, <laughs> open to disagreement, and as probably with many churches, friends make room for conscientious objection, not only in the pacifistic <laughs> sense, but also in the doctrinal sense. Um, a few things that I have highlighted from our own faith and practice, under God's revelation by the Spirit, we read that we believe that God is the source of truth. And there are no spiritual insights or principles independent of his revelation. That God teaches us through the scriptures and through creation. He convicts and instructs conscience testifies the salvation through Christ and gives wisdom and power for holy living. The Spirit gives discernment concerning the purposes of God through natural and social history. So, we believe that God is the source of truth, which means if you read it in the Bible and you're convicted and your conscience bears witness to your convictions and the Spirit says this to you, we want you to know you're free to believe and worship with Christians. That if something that the Spirit points out to you and you say, I don't know if I agree with that with friends... Okay, <laughs> and under the final Christian faith expressed as witness, so the last doctrine we're going to cover next week, just a quick line says, we respect freedom of conscience and honor diversity in the family of God. And so, just so you know, um, happy where I land, I was happy to articulate, but I disagree with at least three of the doctrines I just taught you. <laughs> And um, I've included that in your packet. And the reason I do that is not to say the Quakers are wrong, but I believe it's charged to me in the Bible to be um, diligent as I separate the truth and discern the scriptures. And so I don't want you to read that and feel like you have to agree with me, but I feel like I wouldn't be a godly teacher if I just taught doctrines that I disagreed with and then not let you know otherwise. And in fact, uh, as I say at the beginning of that uh, thing I've included, I have gained a deeper support for Quakers, and then the fact that I'm still preaching in a Quaker church and hold views that are not in agreement with these shows you that they're not such sharp disagreements that I think I shouldn't bear witness to them or believe them or anything like that. So, And again, ever since the Gurneyites, since the mid-1800s, friends have always made allowances for water baptism and physical, or, yeah, physical communion. We do communion here as well, and if approached, again, I would love to administer baptism for anyone. So, uh, I just want to say I'm preaching you Quaker doctrine so you know where we land. Certainly where many folks here do land and do line up 100% believe everything I just agreed with. And, yeah, so any questions? <laughs>